You're listening to episode 153 of the Rebel Buddhist Podcast, where we talk about psychedelic exceptionalism. Welcome to the Rebel Buddhist Podcast, where we explore how to use the science of psychology, Eastern spiritual practices like mindfulness and compassion, and the game-changing work of self-coaching so you can free your mind and free your life. I'm your host, Anna Verzoni. Hey, hey, my friends. I'm recording this in advance because about a week before this drops, I'm going to be starting a silent retreat at Spirit Rock, and I won't be able to record an episode there. And I recorded this back when I did last week's episode because I'd spoken about Dr. Carl Hart when we were discussing sensitivity and addiction. And he has a lot to say about addiction, and many people consider some of his ideas about it pretty radical. And I first met him when I was working with Zendo at Burning Man and uh, last year, where Dr. Hart was part of a panel that included Rick Doblin of MAPS and Jamie Wheel. And he introduced the term, he introduced to me the term psychedelic exceptionalism. Maybe other people had heard of it before, but I hadn't. So the term psychedelic exceptionalism refers to a perspective that psychedelics are somehow better and more useful than other classes of drugs like opioids or stimulants. And in particular, we can supposedly see this bias when it comes to recreational use of these substances as well, although it can certainly extend into the research lab too. So trust me, when I first heard that, I was like, but psychedelics are more beneficial. Like we know psilocybin has an extremely low addiction profile. So safety-wise, it seems better as well. So this concept really blew my mind at the time. And I went up to him to discuss it afterwards. And I have to say that, you know, I told him, I was like, I'm kind of, I just noticed I'm resistant to this. And for me, when I'm really resistant to something, that's a sign to me that I should dive deeper into it and try to see more perspectives, right? And I, as I was talking to him, I started to find his argument more compelling. And I'm still not sure where I land on it. And I realized that one of the main points of encouraging people to take a step back and try to have a different perspective is that all drugs are psychoactive. So it would be remiss to say some are special, some are evil, and that psychedelics get glorified when others have been demonized like since the war on drugs began, right? Especially because part of the selectivity was based on racist practices. And he pointed out that all drugs carry some risk. And depending on how you define danger, they fall on different levels of the risk-benefit ratio. But I think as a culture, it would behoove many of us in modern industrialized society to step out of needing to see things as black and white and good or bad and right or wrong and get really curious about things. Sit in the discomfort. Sit in exploring, wow, what if there's some truth in both of these ideas or truth in the myriad perspectives out there about a topic? So I want to give an introduction to this concept, but please keep in mind, I can't possibly cover the whole shebang in my attempt to also keep this from running too long, all right? So my hope is After I introduce it to you, you can think about it and come to your own conclusion. Learn more about it. Debate it with some friends. Remember that? Remember friendly debate where we could disagree with people and still like them (laughs) or have strong opposite opinions and not start name calling? 
I miss those days. Anyway, I'm going to talk about some interviews I read about him in an NPR piece, as well as relaying my personal conversations with him and an interview in Psychedelics Today, and also an article from the Harvard Law Blog called The Myth of Psychedelic Exceptionalism. So I wanted to start off with a little background on Dr. Hart. He's a neuropsychopharmacologist and chair of Columbia University's Department of Psychology. And he's an author of several books, the most recent of which is called Drug Use for Grownups. Isn't that a good one? And his research focuses on the behavioral and neuropsychological effects of psychoactive drugs in humans. And he has had many publications in academic journals. And an article in Psychedelics Today describes how at a 2019 Psychedelic Science Summit in Austin, Texas, he, quote, addressed a crowd of psychedelic enthusiasts about concerning language he's noticed in psychedelic-focused conversations. So at Burning Man in 2022, I heard him explain how these narratives create a psychedelic exceptionalism that, in his opinion, perpetuate harmful narratives around stigmatized drugs like heroin, methamphetamine, and crack cocaine, and indirectly, the people who choose to use them. So I love that he encourages us to continue to hold healthy skepticism and criticism within the context of like the ultimate goals of decreasing human suffering and being like coming from a humanitarian perspective, right? Because as we're in these transitional times, he's reminding us of this. And in the interview with Psychedelics Today, he says, it's great to be enthusiastic about your drug of choice, but remember not to vilify other drugs. That puts people at risk. And it marginalizes people. I don't think anybody really wants to do that. So that's where I really started like, huh, like I, yeah, tell me more, please. Because I don't, I don't want to marginalize others. And I really wanted to wake up to what he was um, suggesting here. So, you know, who does it put at risk? It's those who use the stigmatized drugs, who end up with the harsher penalties and increased marginalization. And this creates more separation between us as humans. You know, MDMA and methamphetamine, they have very similar chemical structures, yet we have very different images of those drugs and the people who use them. And he pointed out that those who have a drug of choice that they want to encourage the use of for medicinal reasons, for example, they get nervous about being stigmatized with other drugs because it jeopardizes that drug of choice. And then he says here, but there are people who are really suffering, who don't have a choice to calculate. And no one's given us the right to play with people's lives based on politics. What's wrong is wrong, what's right is right, and it's wrong to vilify drugs and people no matter what. Hmm, right? He goes on to emphasize that what's most important is that we do what's right as a human being for human beings. Again, that humanitarian perspective. So, that's why I try to keep the focus of doing what's right as a human being, as a humanitarian. Like I'm trying to keep that in mind when he says that. So when I spoke to him, he said, look, we're all doing the same thing. Whatever drugs we're using, we're all wanting to alter our consciousness to feel better, to suffer less. Life can be hard and we all are wanting to feel better sometimes. So his point being, if we're judging some people who do that with one drug versus another, even when they might not have as much choice 
with what they have access to, that is inconsistent with respecting other people's humanity, in his words there. So as a nurse and someone who's worked in rural areas and in underserved areas, I've seen how horrific the opioid crisis can be, right? So how can he say that mushrooms aren't any better than heroin or fentanyl? Like mushrooms can heal mood disorders and help people with existential crises and all that. And he says, it's not up to me to decide what people choose to work on and what drug they use. If they choose heroin as opposed to mushrooms, that's cool. That's their decision as autonomous adults. And if we think heroin is uniquely more dangerous than mushrooms, well, if we're talking about respiratory depression, yes, it can be. But if we're talking about paranoia at large doses, mushrooms are more dangerous. So he talks about how in Switzerland, they have programs with a regulated supply of heroin, not methadone, and all kinds of services. And they don't see the problems of overdose that we see in this country. And he says that in his research, those people are also more responsible and productive in that respective society. So he claims it's not the drug, it's the conditions under which the drug is being administered. Interesting, right? So just consider it. Notice if we have resistance to like and where that is and soften, soften the edges a little and just consider, okay, hold up. What if this were true? Just to play, to be curious. I mentioned in the previous episode that addiction, according to the DSM-5, has to include that it's a source of distress for the drug user. So the addiction has to cause some level of distress. It must interfere with the person's job, parenting, or personal relationships. It may have high tolerance, withdrawal symptoms, failed efforts to quit. And he points out that 70% or more of drug users do not meet this criteria for addiction. And he says they affect only 10% to 30% of those who use even the most stigmatized drugs, such as heroin or methamphetamine. I did not know that. So he feels that the criteria, well, first, I also want to say, he says that there are so many social conditions under which the use is taking place that leads to many of the negative consequences. And he says that you know, a lot of the criteria that contribute to addiction have to do with people's inability to inhibit, their lack of responsibility skills, or the conditions under which the drugs are available or not available, and like what's available, right? And that it has more to do with those things than in the drug itself. And he makes a case that while opioids can produce a physical dependence more easily than mushrooms, alcohol can too. Yet, There are people who have problems with alcohol, but the vast majority of people in the country don't, and it is legal. So I have to read an excerpt from this NPR interview. He says, whether it's a drug or an activity like driving a car, people can and will get in trouble. It's crazy to think we're somehow going to prevent all negative possible outcomes of some activity. We can certainly take steps to minimize it, and we do, and we could do the same thing with drugs like heroin. And then the interviewer says, uh, Sean Lawler says, you said something during a panel that elicited a strong response. I believe your quote was, heroin made me a better person. I'm curious what that meant. And he says, I don't remember the context that I was saying that, but the point I was trying to make is simple. We have alcohol at receptions, for example, where alcohol functions as a social lubricant. The same can be true with a drug like heroin. 
Many of these psychoactive substances people use make them less anxious, more magnanimous, all these kinds of things. That's not a shocking statement. It's only shocking for people infected with the Puritanism virus. Anybody who knows anything about drug use, particularly with opioids, knows they can enhance positive social interactions, and that's why many people like them. So then the interviewer says, you've said that only 25% of people use heroin are addicted, which is different than the instant addiction cultural narrative we've inherited. And then I'll just close up with what he says here. He says, yeah, but still, you don't want people to become addicted. When I say addicted, I mean the DSM criteria, not just physical dependence. People who take antidepressants, for example, have physical dependency. They can't abruptly stop after taking antidepressants for a number of years. They have to be weaned off. The same is true with opioids. So when I say addiction, I mean that the person is distressed by their drug use and the consequences of their drug use, and they have disruptions in psychosocial functioning. Hmm. And then he says, the 25% still concerns me, but I think it has to do with the stigma associated with heroin. People have to hide their use and engage in tremendous risk because of how society sees heroin. In places like Switzerland, where heroin is available medically, you don't see people engaging in disruptive behaviors to get it. They just go to the clinic, get their daily doses. In many cases, they work and are responsible members of society. Okay, so here, I'm still not totally convinced, right? but I'm trying to be open. I'm like, okay, there's some cases, there's some points he's making here. And I love how at one point he says, I'm, I'm always disturbed when people identify themselves as a psychedelic community. That seems fucking bizarre to me, he says, because he's like, you have all these psychoactive substances and people are taking them for all the same reasons to alter consciousness. And then there's like, oh, but over here, there's these drugs and over there, there's those drugs. And he just thinks it's weird that there's like a line there. And I think it's a good point. I don't think it's a coincidence that there are racial lines that correlate with these divisions and stigmatizations. So he invites us to think about the language we're using for substances we like versus our language for substances that have been vilified, right? That we have an awareness of the narratives that have been built around crack cocaine and heroin versus the narratives built around drugs like psilocybin and MDMA and how wildly they conflict. I mean, we could even throw LSD in there because even that has a different stigmatization than psilocybin, right? So I think one of the main points he's trying to make is no matter what substance people are using, whether cannabis, heroin, MDMA, psilocybin, that all folks are trying to alter their consciousness, seeking the same thing, some respite, some elevated experience. All right. So now a critique of this concept um, was something I read in a Harvard Law blog. It was called The Myth of Psychedelic Exceptionalism. So in that, I could hear a lot of the same ideas going through this writer's head that were going through mine as I think about this. And since it's from a Harvard Law blog, they're naturally focusing on legislation. And the author mentions that some Dr. Hart included, are concerned that singling out psychedelics for legalization or decriminalization perpetuates the stigma surrounding other illegal drugs. And he says, psychedelic exceptionalism is an ideology that claims psychedelics should be privileged for reform, but other more harmful drugs like heroin and cocaine should stay prohibited. Yet, as Dr. Hart pointed out, all substances have the potential to heal and harm. And if we just toss them all together in one basket, right? that becomes like reductionist. So 
psilocybin mushrooms have a relatively great safety profile, right? And high potential for therapeutic uh, interventions, especially for looking at mental health. So the Harvard Law piece points out that according to one study, psilocybin ranked as the least addictive and dangerous substance out of 20 examined. Moreover, treating all drugs as unitary, i.e. lumped together into a single controlled substances act, is how we got into the mess that is federal drug prohibition in the first place. On the other hand, we can't completely ignore the harms of not addressing the decriminalization of non-psychedelic substances. And he agrees that the war on drugs is racist, ineffective, and draconian in his words. So compared to other controlled substances, we've seen that arrests linked to psychedelics, they're far less uh, common and in general don't target people of color. Yet over one and a half million Americans are arrested for drug-related violations every year in connection with over-aggressive policing and racial profiling, right? So in the U.S., for example, Black Americans constitute only 15% of drug users in the U.S., but account for 37% of those arrested for drug violations. And nearly 80% of individuals in prison for drug-related offenses are Black or Latinx. So I think it's really interesting that this author feels that if state reform focuses on psychedelics, it would actually pave the way for other larger drug reform. So I'm a licensed provider in Oregon. I'm in the process of getting approved to provide psilocybin services because in November 2020, Oregon voters passed the psilocybin services initiative, right? So this is a statewide system for actually growing and distributing psilocybin and and administering it under professional supervision. And they also passed what's called the DATRA, which is the Drug Addiction Treatment and Recovery Act. And that decriminalizes use and possession of limited amounts of, get this, all controlled substances. So DATRA is expected to lead to a 95% decline in racial disparities for drug arrests and other criminal justice measures, like um, pretrial detentions and police stops. I mean, wow. So this article goes on to list a few legislative changes. Around the same time in D.C., they approved a ballot initiative to decriminalize the use and possession of natural psychedelics. And the next month, they unanimously passed the measure removing criminal penalties for possession of drug paraphernalia for personal use and allowing community-based organizations to distribute harm reduction supplies. And in Cambridge, Massachusetts, a resolution was adopted to decriminalize psychedelics. And they said that in recognition of the devastating effect of the war on drugs on vulnerable populations, they directed the city prosecutor and police force to stop arresting and prosecuting people for possession of any controlled substance. So these are examples that are actually showing that as psychedelics are decriminalized, it can pave the way for larger drug reform that addresses these disparities that are being presented as concerns with psychedelic exceptionalism, right? So I think I think he makes some good points here too. Okay, so then he says, viewed through this lens, the harm of psychedelic exceptionalism appears to be more myth than fact. But like, I think while that might be true from a legislation perspective, I'm not totally sure that it addresses the stigmatization 
So that's like one area that I'm still not sure where I land at yet. But he recommends legalizing cannabis and certain psychedelics, especially psilocybin, and decriminalizing other substances while prioritizing harm reduction strategies to address the overdose crisis, right? And with psychedelics specifically, he thinks it's a good idea to reschedule schedule one controlled substances that show medical promise, like psilocybin and MDMA, and in, in my opinion, LSD, but that's really stigmatized right now as well, believe it or not. You know, and that way we can continue research and use in a medical container as well. And as appropriate, just for like adult recreational <laughs> preferences, right? So he also thinks the Fed should stay out of state therapy programs like in Oregon and says, you know, we need to support right to try laws, even though there's a federal schedule one status. So, oh, I realized I didn't actually name the author of the Harvard Law post. And so that's Dustin Marlin. Sorry about that, Dustin. So um, I think it's also an interesting perspective. And I think once again, I'll likely find myself landing in the middle, not because of not wanting to commit to one side or the other, but because I can see how these overlap, like a Venn diagram, the mandorla, the almond shape in the middle, where no matter how much we'd feel safer on one side or the other, if we just knew one was right, it's in the middle is the place most of humanity's experience takes place in the middle. So I want to close with what Dr. Hart said, as I think it's really relevant for these times. If you just remind people to think about other people's humanity in the same way they think about their own, this won't be an issue. If they think of people as being equal to them. This is not a problem. We all make mistakes and that's fine. But once you remember that no matter who you're dealing with, they're another person who deserves the same kind of respect you deserve, then it becomes easy. What do you think? So like when you explore Ejipasiko, the Buddhist concept of come see for yourself, what does your inner guru think of these ideas. And if we can get out of our heads and into our heart, carrying the wise mind with us, what do you think would be the more compassionate approach for humanity? So I'm excited to hear what you all think. I think it's an interesting debate. I think these are really cool concepts to explore and relevant. So yeah, have fun. Have fun pondering these things, okay? And I will see you after my retreat. I will be back and I will be well-rested, yo. I'm so excited for that. All right, have an amazing week. And if you want to dive into this stuff more deeply, go to joinfreedomschool.com because when I get back from retreat, we start up our calls again and you can get coached by yours truly. So that's joinfreedomschool.com. If you like what you heard, please spread the love and share it. And if you know you need some help with this and want to learn more about how to free your mind and free your life, go to rebelbuddhist.com and grab my free Rebel Buddhist Toolkit, where you'll receive a video training on cultivating resilience, access to the private Rebel Buddhist group where I do weekly live sessions on topics just like this, and a copy of the gorgeous Rebel Buddhist Manifesto, and more for free. That's rebelbuddhist.com.